about 45 million of the currently living Americans will die of Alzheimer's. So it really dwarfs the pandemic where we've had over, over 1 million. The biggest fear in the world today is no longer public speaking. It's the fear of losing your memories because we're living longer. We're finding that their earlier life traumatic brain injuries might affect this. Are you seeing any of that in your research? You know, we thought of Alzheimer's as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s. We now know that the biochemical changes start at least 20 years early. So it's become a disease of really your 30s, 40s, and even we see people in their late 20s who begin to have some of the changes. Welcome to the Brain Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Patrick Porter. Please join us on our mission to better a billion brains. Enjoy the episode and remember to share it with your family and friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fascinating episode of the Brain Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Patrick Porter. Today is going to be an extra special day because we're diving into an incredibly important topic, Alzheimer's prevention and reversal. And guess what? We've got the perfect guest for this conversation, the one and only Dr. Dale Bredesen. Dr. Bredesen is quite the superstar in the world of neuroregenerative research. He's been in the thick of it, studying the prestigious places like Caltech and Duke University and doing phenomenal work at the top institutions like UCLA and the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. His contributions have been memorialized in the fight against Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. One of the coolest things about Dr. Bredesen, he's not just about lab work. He's made sure to take his findings beyond research papers. You might even know him from his New York Times best-selling books, where he breaks down complex Alzheimer's information for everyone to understand. Today, as we tackle Alzheimer's prevention and reversal, we couldn't be more thrilled to learn from his brilliant mind. So without further ado, Let's give a big warm welcome to our esteemed guest, Dr. Dale Bredesen. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bredesen. Tell us a little bit about your journey. What got you started in cognitive decline and what made you think that, hey, we could reverse Alzheimer's? Yeah, you know, and, and I didn't know that at the beginning. Uh, and so what happened was when I was a freshman at Caltech, I read a book called The Machinery of the Brain uh, by, by uh, Woldridge. Uh, Dean Wooldridge, and uh, and I just got fascinated by the similarities and differences between the way computers function and the way brains function. Uh, and so I thought, okay, th this is a really, really interesting thing and how all the ways it works, et cetera. And I thought, okay, I wanna go to medical school to learn what we can do to help brains that are not functioning normally. And actually I was surprised, unfortunately, when I got there and decided to become a neurologist, I found out that uh, this is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor. So whether it's Alzheimer's or ALS or frontotemporal dementia or Lewy body disease, and you just go down and down the, the list of these things, it is just horrible. These are terminal illnesses where there just hadn't been anything. So I wondered, okay, what's going on here? And so um, I set up my own laboratory way back in 1989, we ran the lab for 27 years to look at this fundamental nature of the process. Why is it that this happens? Why does neurodegeneration happen? Why does it happen so frequently? And as an example, uh, about 45 million of the currently living Americans will die of Alzheimer's. So it really dwarfs the pandemic where we've had over, over 1 million we're talking about 45 million of the currently living Americans. So it's incredibly common, a major issue, and there just hasn't been anything. And so many years and 230 published papers, uh, we studied this phenomenon. 
Uh, and then uh, right around 2011, we started to realize we could begin to translate some of the findings that we had in the lab, the basic research into, okay, we actually might be able to do something for people who actually have some degree of cognitive decline. And the big realization we had was that the idea that you go after this with a single pill or a single injection makes no biological sense. What we discovered is that what we call Alzheimer's is fundamentally a network insufficiency. So you've got this network when you've got a supply and a demand, and the demand is exceeding the supply, either because the supply went down or the demand went up, typically both. And so you are now retreating. Uh, and so we realized you've got to identify all the different parameters. It's a different way to do medicine. And then uh, in 2012, we had just gotten turned down for a, a trial because they said it was too complicated. No one's going to do these different things. And uh, so a patient came to see me and she did really well, improved. Uh, and I realized, okay, we're on the right track. And so we've then published the first 10 and then another 10 and then the first 100. And then we just published a, a clinical trial. And all these things are freely available online so that you can see the, the papers. So I'm very excited. I think this is a tremendous period where by leaps and bounds, we're understanding better and being able to have a positive impact on brain function, just, just as you know. What do you think is the biggest reason for this? I mean, we we tell people that all stress is really brain stress because it's how your brain processes it. And I think what you're talking about there with these two different things, what do you think is, and it seems like people younger and younger are getting these diseases where before we, we might hear about occasionally there'd be the someone in your family that would have them. It seems like it's, it's like you said, it's, it's more like a, a pan of Alzheimer's and dementia right now. You know, you're exactly right. And the epidemiologists have shown us over the last several years that indeed what's been on the rise the most is young onset Alzheimer's disease. These are people in their 40s and 50s. And I've gone back to some of my old colleagues and said, you know, I don't ever remember seeing anyone when, we, when I was uh, training in neurology who uh, was in their 40s or 50s and had Alzheimer's. And everyone agrees, we just didn't see it. Now it's one of the most common things we see. Typically it's uh, people in their early 50s, more common as we know in women than men. And it, with these people, it, 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 there seems to be a big component of toxin exposure, because if you then deal with that, if you then reduce that, um, they, they, they often improve. But you're absolutely right. There's been a major problem here uh, that we're seeing younger people having Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. A lot of our doctors talk about the, the three T's, the thoughts, traumas, and toxins. So you're talking about that a little bit too. I mean, what amount do you attribute to like trauma that's happened to people? Because a, a lot of people now, because we're living longer, we're finding that their earlier life traumatic brain injuries might affect this. Are you seeing any of that in your research? Absolutely. Um, you know, what, what's been exciting to me is the test tube research has shown us what the targets are and what's actually driving this process. So you actually can see a change in cellular signaling. As you know, the protein, amyloid precursor protein, um, the, which is the, the parent of amyloid, um, actually mm -hmm. sits in cells, but especially neurons and especially at synapses. And you can literally see as things are positive, this thing is cleaved at a single site. It gives you one peptide for outside the cell, one for inside the cell. And they're basically saying grow and, and, inter and interact. 
On the other hand, when things are bad, you have trauma, as you said, um, you have toxins, as you said, you have pathogens, a common issue, you have metabolic derangements, any of these things, then what happens is you're now change the signaling, that same molecule is cleaved at three sites, producing four different peptides, and they are literally sending the signal, pull back and protect yourself. And by the way, there's a direct analogy to what happened to our country in COVID-19. Early in 2020, we were all told, you know, there's a, there's a new pathogen out there, SARS-CoV-2. You've got to shelter in place. You got to socially distance. You got to not go to work, all those sorts of things. And what happened? We went into a recession. That's exactly what your brain is doing when things are bad. And what's interesting, you can actually see these peptides. They're not there to give you a disease. They're there to fight pathogens. And in fact, the amyloid itself as was shown by professors Robert Moyer and Rudy Tanzi at Harvard several years ago, has a beautiful uh, anti, uh, antimicrobial effect. It actually has antiviral effects. It has antibacterial uh, effects, uh, antispirochetal, and even antifungal effects. So it's an amazing thing that's actually response to insults. So yes, we're seeing this disease that people have said is about protein misfolding. No, this disease is really about insults and your response to insults a lot of what i've been reading recently and maybe it's been part of your research because you've done so much is you know the the amount of sugar that people eat in their diets are so rich in um like artificial sugars as well and i just read an article where uh, they're talking about these artificial sweeteners are really damaging to the brain and leading to dementia and alzheimer's have you seen any of that in your research absolutely and you know one of the most common contributors has been insulin resistance. And so you're absolutely right. And there's, you know, there's a wonderful book uh, by Professor Robert Lustig right here at uh, UCSF nearby. Um, and what Rob pointed out was, you know, as we started having all these processed foods, uh, you know, then we start seeing all of these increased metabolic problems and Alzheimer's, no question, is heavily impacted by your metabolic status. So if you have meta, so-called metabolic syndrome, and there are about 80 million Americans who do, um, your risk for Alzheimer's jumps multiple fold. If you simply have prediabetes, it about doubles. So having insulin resistance is huge. And we now understand a bit about why, because you only have, as you know, two substrates you can burn with your neurons. You either have to have glucose or you have to have ketones. Well, unfortunately, when I see patients who are having problem and are heading toward Alzheimer's, they virtually always lost both of those. So they're no longer able to burn glucose because of the insulin resistance. And in fact, if you look at a PET scan, that is the signature of Alzheimer's, reduced glucose utilization in the temporal and parietal regions. But on the other hand, they're not able to make ketones because the high insulin prevents you from making ketones. So they have the worst of both worlds. And so part of our approach to treat them is to improve their insulin sensitivity and their improve their ability to get into ketosis, initially with exogenous, but then ultimately with endogenous ketosis. That's great. Yeah, we always talk about the liver and it's housing uh, 25 grams of sugar and stress responses and how our life is so different now that we're being triggered by this stress and people don't realize it's not always what you're eating. They might think they're eating well, but if they're in that insulin drip just continues every day because they're eating all these supposed 
candy bars because the 25 grams of sugar is like a candy bar. You know, I wrote an article why why stress is more fattening than chocolate. And, yeah. and people, are when they, they don't Point. deal with stress issue. So have you done any research to show people who are under more stress are more susceptible to this disease? There's no question that's been published repeatedly. So stress is definitely one of the risk factors for cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's disease. But let's go beyond that because again, we, well, a lot of what we've done is about the mechanisms. How does this work? And what's really interesting is if you boil down this supply and demand in, in, that leads to Alzheimer's, there are two major groups of players. It's all about energetics and it's all about inflammation. And so the inflammation, of course, putting more demand, the energetics reducing your supply, reducing your ability to deal with these things. And what happens is when you look at <clears throat> what, what's going on with the inflammation, this is about the innate immune system. And by the way, again, another analogy to COVID-19. Why did people die of COVID-19? Because of cytokine storm, of course. And what happens is with COVID-19, your innate system is just flying and your adaptive system has not been able to clear the virus. So you're just spewing out these cytokines. You're trying to get that adaptive system kicked into gear to clear the virus. But unfortunately for many people, that's not possible. It doesn't work out, which is by the way, actually what people will do is kind of damp things down uh, with some steroids, uh, which is not a long-term solution, but it, it, saves, it saves your life. Uh, when used at the right time. So what happens is in Alzheimer's, instead of dying of cytokine storm, you're dying of cytokine drizzle. You're still having this innate system on. And so how do you, what happens is this system actually has a memory. It used to be thought that the innate system didn't have a memory the way the adaptive system does. Turns out it does have a memory and it lives in three sites. It lives in your bone marrow. It lives in your endothelial cells, which is why you have increased clotting during this and it lives in your tissue macrophages, which in the brain, of course, are the microglia. So what happens is just as you say, you can actually set the system higher, which increases your risk for Alzheimer's by eating saturated fats, by having you know, a poor diet, or by having stress and trauma. So if you've got some mental stress, or as you said, any sort of stress that ends up being brain stress, it will set this higher because it's putting you on high alert. Maybe you're being invaded by pathogens. And so absolutely, stress is one of the contributors to risk for cognitive decline. And we see this all the time, that as people get under more stress, their cognition goes down. As they clear their stress, their cognition goes back up again. And very interesting. I know that uh, there, everyone's trying to figure out what are the precursors to this. And we see it uh, way ahead of time, but people don't take notice That's of it. When you're, when you're created your, your recode program, do you yeah. have any way for people to recognize, Hey, uh, they're going to be one of those 45 million, like you're talking about that are alive today. I mean, they, if they started working today, maybe they could avoid that. What, what couldn't they be looking for? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because you know, when I was training again, uh, you know, we thought of Alzheimer's as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s. We now know that the biochemical changes start at least 20 years early. So it's become a disease of really your 30s, 40s, and even we see people in their late 20s who begin to have some of the changes. The good news is, although in the past you've had to do PET scans and get spinal taps, and you know, who wants to go in for a spinal tap every couple of years, right? The great news is there are now some new blood tests that you can look at. And so 
there's one which is called Phosphotau 181, and there's another one coming out, Phosphotau 217. What this is looking at is the phosphorylation of tau. Tau is something that actually stabilizes your microtubules. So it helps your neuronal projections to stay stable. Now, no surprise when you say, oh my gosh, we got to pull back. You got to pull out this is just like, uh, you know, undoing on your, on your rafters. You have to get the bolts out of there. So the way that works with tau is when you phosphorylate it, it changes the structure, it pops off there, and now you collapse. So no surprise, when you're in a collapsing state, as with Alzheimer's and even pre-Alzheimer's, you see an increase in phosphotau. So it's good for people to know their phosphotau. But interestingly, even before that, there's another one you can check. Now, that one's just coming on the market. It's been a research tool, um, and it's not as specific. Whereas phosphotau is specific for Alzheimer's, GFAP, which is glial fibrillary acidic protein, is not specific. So anything that's causing you to pull back, and it could be head trauma, it could be frontotemporal dementia, it could be strokes, it could be Alzheimer's. But the great news is you can look early on. So I would recommend, you know, everyone who's 40 or above get what we call a cognoscopy that looks at some blood tests, it looks at some a simple online cognitive assessment, um, and it looks at uh, and it looks at your an MRI. Oh, and again, only you only need the MRI if you're already symptomatic. The reality is Alzheimer's is now optional. Virtually nobody needs to get this. With all the great things available, like brain tap, and all the great things available from stimulating to you know various pathogens to detox, all the things that we now have available to us. The armamentarium is huge. We used to be told there's nothing you can do about this, but getting in there earlier, just as you mentioned, a, being able to find out what's driving the change, which we can now do with the cognoscopy, and then targeting those things. So this is a precision medicine sort of approach. You're targeting the things that are actually causing you risk. Really, nobody should be getting this problem. And so I encourage everyone who's 40 or over, please get evaluated. That's great. I know that in neuroscience, we, we know that neuropruning is natural. It's part of our evolution and what we do. What's the difference between this and neuropruning? Because uh, it, this seems like it's neuropruning out of control. I mean, and without discretion. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, this is such a good point. Um, as you also know, you know, you actually, if you look as people's brains are aging, you see a lot of complement sitting on their synapses. Uh, very, very interesting finding. Uh, so yes, there is a degree of neural pruning, but as you say, it gets runaway. So I think what's happening really here, and I have to say, we don't know the final answer on this yet, but I believe what's happening is, as you know, you have this constant feedback. So you're essentially matching. You know, are we matched? Uh, you know, is this pruning the appropriate amount? Are you functioning well? Are you doing okay? Or does it come back and say, we need more and more and more. We just can't support this. Part of this, as I said, is energetics. We see as people's blood flow goes down, no surprise, they pull that, pull back. The network becomes smaller. As they have all sorts of pathogens, the network becomes smaller. So you're literally, your brain is making a decision. Am I going to be able to build and maintain, or do I have to put my resources into fighting things like pathogens and toxins and things like that? So I would agree with you. This is pruning, but it's on steroids, unfortunately, um, and it's and it's beyond. Now, again, 
you're, it's not trying to kill you. It's trying to help you. But you need to help it by finding these things out and getting yourself the appropriate energetics so that you can support a large functional brain and getting rid of pathogens and toxins and things like that um, and reduced energetics that are pushing your brain to be in that downsizing mode. Now, it's interesting. If you think about it, if I said to you, okay, Patrick, tomorrow you're going to wake up, you can either uh, lose your ability to learn new things, or you can lose your ability to speak and understand, you know, which would you take? Uh, so, you know, the bottom line is you can do a tremendous amount with the memory that you already have. So if you have to sacrifice something, learning new things actually turns out as bad as it sounds, it's much better than losing what you've already got your ability to speak and to reason and to interact. So to some extent, the brain has made this amazing decision. Okay, we're gonna downsize you, but we're gonna keep the most important things. It's almost like your car saying, look, you know, you haven't treated me well. Um, okay, so I'm gonna get, get rid of the ability to go into overdrive, um, but you're still gonna be able to drive around town and on the highway and you should have no, you're just not gonna be a race car anymore. So it's actually not such a horrible decision. But of course, what happens is people don't know that they're doing this and they don't understand what's causing it. So they just keep downsizing, downsizing until they can't take care of themselves. So the good news is we have a huge window of opportunity because when you develop cognitive decline of Alzheimer's disease, it goes through four phases. So phase one, you are asymptomatic. And as I said, that can be in your late 20s, 30s, or early 40s where you know that there's, you know, that, that you, you're not even noticing yet, but your PET scan would already be abnormal and your GFAP would be starting to go up, et cetera. So, you know, we, we can find it at that time. The second phase lasts about 10 years. So we have a wonderful window of opportunity. This is called SCI, Subjective Cognitive Impairment. And you know there's something wrong during that time. Your spouse may know it, your coworkers may know it, but you're still testing normally on cognitive testing. If you don't do anything about that during those 10 years, and of course, that's so we really want to make sure prevention or early reversal. If you don't do it, you're going to go into the third phase, which is mild cognitive impairment. And Patrick, I wish they hadn't I wish they hadn't named it mild cognitive impairment. It's like telling someone, don't worry, you only have mildly metastatic cancer. Um, it is a relatively late stage of Alzheimer's disease, third of four. Um, and during that time, you now are testing abnormally, but you still have the ability to care for yourself, your activities of daily living, you can drive, you can pay your bills and things like that. If you don't do something with that, five to 10% of those people each year convert to full-on dementia. That's the fourth phase. And that's where you're now having trouble with activities of daily living. So the good news is we can look earlier, we can treat earlier, and we can make it so that very few people ever get to that third and fourth phase. I know your research, you've, you've delved into the solution as well, because we, of course, we have to know the problem, but you actually have solutions for people. So Absolutely. can you tell us with your research, what are the five lifestyle changes that you found wherever they're at on that journey? They could be nowhere on that journey, but this will help anybody, right? You have five lifestyle changes that I, I'd love you for you to share with the group here. 
Yeah, great point. Um, so what we do is we do a core, just as you say, with the, with the, the basics. And then we look at, okay, there are specifics. Someone may have Borrelia. Someone may have Babesia. They're going to be different than another person, but we have to get at that. Someone may have mycotoxins. So the basics, and I, I, I apologize for expanding it a little, the basics are seven. So it's diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and some targeted supplements. Those are the basic seven. And they each one has, you know, each one you could spend hours talking about. There is a certain diet that actually does the best for cognitive change. And it is a plant-rich, mildly ketogenic diet. You don't want to go so much with fasting that you're now, again, this is a, this is a network insufficiency. So you don't want to starve people, but you want to bring back insulin sensitivity and you want to bring back ketosis. So you now metabolically flexible. That's the critical piece about the diet. Then exercise. The critical thing is delivering that blood flow and that oxygenation. And in fact, I don't know if you've talked about EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy, quite helpful for so many people because it is delivering exactly what you need. And then sleep. And again, so many people are sleeping wrong. It is so important you need to have seven to eight hours of restorative sleep. You need to find out if you're dropping your SpO2 at night. Beautiful paper showing that literally just your average oxygen saturation at night correlates beautifully with the size of your hippocampus and other nuclei in your brain. So it's amazing. So sleep and absolutely you want to have at least an hour of slow, of deep sleep and at least an hour and a half of REM sleep to get the best outcomes. And you want to make sure that your oxygenation while you're sleeping best is up in that 96 to 98, but at least get it above 92. If you're dropping into the 80s and we see people even into the 70s, you are hurting yourself over the long run. Again, another reason I like EWAT because you're now at least getting yourself a period of very good oxygenation. And then stress, as you mentioned earlier, huge player. And it, it literally is, you can see the biochemistry, what it's doing with this stress threat, with altering your amygdala. This is setting your innate system on high alert and increasing your risk. And then brain training. Professor Mike Mersnick, of course, won the Kavli Prize. He is the father of brain training um, and has shown how uh, protective this can actually be. Uh, and then detox, as I mentioned, and it turns out so many of us are exposed to inorganic toxins, organic toxins, or biotoxins, things like trichothecenes uh, or ochratoxin A, things like that. And then targeted supplements. And again, the armamentarium is huge. So just getting an appropriate omega-3 index is important. Um, just getting your magnesium right is important, your vitamin D right. Um, if you have some inflammation, using resolvents to bring, and this is from Professor Charles Searhan at Harvard also, uh, and so that you can improve uh, literally resolve the inflammation, bring that innate system back in line. Uh, there's so much. And of course, things like whole coffee fruit extract that increases your brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And there's an intimate relationship, interestingly, between APP signaling and BDNF itself. So these are all related phenomena uh, and all things that can be addressed very productively. I've also uh, read that a lot of the Alzheimer cases, like 20% of them, are they also have other disease symptoms, and then it kind of exacerbates the Alzheimer's that they're experiencing. Can you explain what that is and how people can get ahead of that? If they're right now 
experiencing some of these diseases that lead, maybe they're not even considered leading to them, but they have this disease state. What should they be doing to offset this dementia and Alzheimer's that's that's uh, hitting everyone? It's such a good point because we know, and a simple example is COVID-19. Um, that's been published uh, by numerous groups. It increases risk for Alzheimer's disease. Anything that's causing chronic inflammation. So whether you have rheumatoid arthritis, whether you have uh, you know Lyme disease, you just whether you have poor dentition uh, with increased P. gingivalis. And in fact, the neuropathologists have shown us the P. gingivalis, which is associated with poor dentition, winds up in the brain. You actually see the plaques. And so what happens is the brain is making this amyloid as a way to sequester and kill the invading pathogens. So you're absolutely right. Any of these diseases, then of course, then there's the stress component. If you go through surgery, there's the anesthesia component and it's associated toxicity and it's associated hypoxia. It's associated reduced blood flow often during the procedure, uh, just the stress itself. All of these things are contributory. So again, wellness and getting people optimized, really, really helpful for preventing cognitive decline and is part of what we address. How can people learn more about the Recode program? Because you've talked about it, you've actually proved it, something that really has not been done before. So where can they learn about that, whether they're somewhere around the world listening to this or if they're in a certain area of the country of the United States, where, where can they go learn? Yeah, and so you know we've trained over two thousand practitioners from all over the world, uh, and so you can actually get training at what we call Recode 2.0. So if you just look up Recode 2.0, this is through Apollo Health. Apollo is a group that does softwares that help us to get larger and larger uh, data sets, so we can really understand what's driving the problem. You know, brain disease is complicated. And this idea that you're going to just write a single prescription, I mean, it's just turned out to be kind of silly. You're going to have this one tiny little molecule. You've got all these network shifts and pathogens and toxins and all these things, and you're just going to give it one little tiny molecule, and it's just going to go and do everything. Uh, it's actually a bit naive. So you can get Recode 2.0 training. You can also read a book. So I've published three books on this. Uh, one called The End of Alzheimer's, the second one's called The End of Alzheimer's Program, and then the third one is because people asked for more, more detail after the first one. Um, and then the third book is called The First Survivors of Alzheimer's. I have to say, Patrick, if you read the book, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, and it doesn't bring a tear to your eye occasionally, uh, then you're a pretty strong guy because these the, the seven people who all were told that they were going to die of Alzheimer's, they all got much better. They wrote their own stories for the book. It's just so touching. And to, to talk about their families, uh, I, I was I was just really touched by by what they said and what they've done. And there do we have people now who are over a decade on our protocol and the recode protocol and continuing to do very, very well. And at the same time, we've had a few where they'll now start to backslide a little and say, well, wait a minute, something's driving this. You then, okay, you have to look at further laboratory data and you can find, aha, in one case, it was because someone had had a tick-borne illness, a Babesia. Another one had Bartonella. Another one had mycotoxin exposure. So it's one thing or another. Another one found out she had severe sleep apnea that she hadn't been aware of. So uh, these things are all contributory and all important to find out about. So you can see it through the books. 
You can see it um, on the Recode 2.0 training. Um, you can look at drbredison.com. You can look at uh, Facebook. So Dr. Dale Bredesen on Facebook, also on Twitter, uh, also on Instagram. So lots of ways uh, to look at this. Right. And this is big because everyone knows somebody who's being touched by this. And the biggest fear in the world today is no longer public speaking. It's the fear of losing your memories and being a burden to your family. So you have a solution for them so they can reach out. We're going to have all those websites listed below so that they can go check those out. I know we could keep talking. Like you said, we could take each of your your seven lifestyle tips yeah. and go on for an hour or two. Uh, but what have I forgot to ask you about or you think is really important for Brain Tap Nation so that they start to learn that they can take back control of their brain health and start seeing improvements today? Thanks so much. So I would say for Brain Tap Nation, two things. Number one, please, everyone who's 40 or over, get a cognoscopy, get on active prevention, um, including brain tap. There's so many things you can do to prevent cognitive decline. It really should be a rare problem. And if you've already got it in your family, let's end it with this generation. That's critical. And then the second thing is going forward, how do we then adapt this to other neurodegenerative diseases? And as you know, we are now opening the first precision medicine program uh, for neurodegenerative diseases of all sorts uh, in the world, which will be at the Pacific Neuroscience Institute, should be coming online later this year. I'm so enthusiastic about this. Uh, Dr. Dan Kelly, who's the head of the PNI, uh, and, uh, and, and Dr. David Merrill, who's the head of the Pacific Brain Health Center within the P Pacific Neuroscience Institute. They've really been uh, they've really been wonderful uh, to to help this get going, and so my hope is there will for the first time be a place for people from all over the world who have neurodegenerative conditions. Please come in, get evaluated, get treated, and come in as early as possible, preferably for prevention, so that we can truly reduce the global burden of neurodegenerative disease. That's great. And I want to thank you for taking your time. I know you're a very busy man doing the research, working with people out there in the Bay Area. I love that area. I used to live there, as I said, when, when yeah. before we got on this beautiful area. So if people want to learn more, we're going to have all those links in the show notes. Let's put an end to Alzheimer's. Like you said, I think your book is very inspiring. And so many people are focused on the, the problem. Go ahead. One more thing I wanted to add, because um, the Summit Brain Tap Nation may be interested, we've just started a clinical trial as well. We had a very successful clinical trial published last year. It's freely available online, Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. But we've now started a larger randomized controlled trial. It's at six sites around the country. So please look up Evan Thea, E-V-A-N-T-H-E-A, -E Dementia Reversal Trial. Uh, when I'm really fortunate to work with six absolutely outstanding physicians uh, who have had great success in their own practices with reversal of cognitive decline. So if anyone is interested in that, please check that out. That's great. And that's a great point because we're only going to get through this by really evaluating testing with these large numbers where people yeah. can't argue with the results. You know, 20 years ago, nobody thought we could change the brain. Now they know that we're neuroplastic, that we can change yep. it. And we continue to learn even at over 100 years old that there's no time like the present to get started, as you said. 
So yep. please, everyone, go. If you haven't read the book, you can go get the books on Amazon. You can go to uh, Dr. Dale's website, which we'll have listed below. All of this is freely available out there, too. You can follow him on Instagram. Uh, go go see. I mean, you have a lot of videos on YouTube, too, where right. you're being interviewed, which is yep. pretty exciting. I, I learned a lot on those as well. So I'm going to encourage people to, to learn. Education is the key here. And then implementation. You know, start using those seven tips, like you said. Start yep. doing it today because it's easier to fix your house before the storm happens than uh, try to fix it in the middle of a hurricane. So, so let's get doing it. And again, thank you. Thank you, Dale, for being on the show. I can't wait to do more with you and hear more about your research, get our doctors involved with what you're doing, because this is a massive climb that we have, but I think you've shown us how to get to the summit. We just need to do it one by one and get people there. So again, appreciate your time, your energy, your effort in, in helping to change the world. We're on a mission to better a billion brains. And what you're doing is helping that that method because we have to do it as a as a team as a social conscious group uh we can't leave anyone behind here because someone's suffering out there so please like share anyone you know with a brain this is the time to share this message with them so that they can learn that they can influence the health of their brain they don't have to wait until they have a problem i always tell people you don't have to have a breakdown to have a breakthrough you can do that today and you've shared so much valuable information here dale i appreciate your time thank you Thank you so much, Patrick. Great talking to you. So those out there, BrainTap Nation, please share this with everyone you know. Like the video. Let's let the world know that you have a powerful healing mechanism. The brain is designed to heal, but we have to give it the right implementation process, whether it's food, exercise, delivery systems, or going to your medical practitioner. Whatever you need, the information's out there, but let's start today. So again, we're out to better a billion brains. Today, it's your brain. So congratulations, and we'll look forward to you listening to the next episode of the Brain Fitness Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on our mission to better a billion brains. Follow at Dr. Patrick Porter on social media for updates, and remember to practice brain fitness every day.